Hi everyone, it's Greg, and here are some podcasts to check out during this season of Lent in March 2021. It's been a year since the COVID pandemic shut down church life as we knew it, and we're taking this opportunity to talk about virus pop culture on this month's Popping Collars. Special guest Shayna Watson comes on our new Popping Collars game show, The Canon, as we all attempt to draft the ultimate collection of Kevin Costner films. Our journey through the movies of 1990 takes a strange detour on Going on 30 as Betsy and I discuss Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. On The Sacred Six, we've arrived at season three of The Wire. Listen to special guest Eric Matoye break down the pros and cons of the Hamsterdam experience as we discuss the episode Back Burners. Finally, it's time for another PC book club, but with a twist. Enjoy the early April Fool's shenanigans. Thanks for listening, and keep those collars popped. Hello, this is Chris Arnold, and I was the guest on episode one of Popping Collars. Hello, this is Shana Watson, ordained priest serving at St. James Episcopal Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm John White. I'm the podcast editor at Episcopal Cafe. Hi there. This is Reverend Eric Matoye from the Episcopal Diocese of California. This is Kyle Goodman, the lead pastor of Alamance Presbyterian Church. Hi, I'm Richard Lindsay, the godfather of Popping Collars. Hello, I am Holly McHale Larson, pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Oakland. Hi there, this is the Reverend Mark. Martin Alfred from Grace Memorial Episcopal Church in beautiful Portland, Oregon. And you are listening. And you are listening to. And you are listening to. And you're listening to. You are listening to. And you are listening to. And you're listening to Popping Collars. 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 And this is Popping Collars. Welcome to Popping Collars, the longest-running Episcopal pop culture podcast out there. I'm Liz Easton. I'm your host for today. I serve as the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Nebraska, and with me are my co-hosts. Introduce yourselves. Tell us what you're up to. Greg Knight. Hey, Liz. Uh, Greg Knight. I'm the Director of Children and Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, This episode comes out during Lent. And what I like about Lent in the Christian church is that all the stuff that you forgot to do for like a New Year's resolution, you can just do it in Lent. So my my Lenten resolution is to talk more about Jesus on this podcast. Hey! Oh, you're making my heart sing. I love it. Ooh, let's try to start today. Awesome. Thanks. And Ricardo Avila, what are you up to? Hey, Liz. I am the rector at St. Luke's uh, in Los Gatos, California. Yeah, you know, just Lent is just doing its thing, and uh, the parishioners are stepping in line. And, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, and we always gave things up for Lent. And uh, it's really hard to get Episcopalians, at least the ones I've met, uh, to to participate in that way. We're doing a fundraiser for uh, food programs and trying to tie it to a spiritual component. And so we'll see how that goes. Thanks. Awesome. I should have started with Lent and said that my I'm going big this year. Wait, last year it was TV, right? 
or it last started. year I gave up buying things. It was buy nothing. Oh, buying and I also shopped at a different grocery store, which sounds insignificant, but it actually really shook me up. This year I'm giving up coffee. Now I want to be clear. I am drinking caffeine. I'm drinking like green tea. I haven't given up coffee since I gave it up once in college for Lent. And it was rough. There, I'm hijacking your Lent thread. Betsy Carmody, what's up with you? I'm the head chaplain at Episcopal High School here in beautiful Alexandria, Virginia. I am I am recovering from knee surgery. That's what I'm doing because you know what? 2020 gives and gives and it allows you to trip over cords used to stream church services and then tear your meniscus in a very unsexy way. And so there we go, but I'm doing better and I'm feeling good. And, and, uh, it's been tough, but yeah, my family, my community takes a village to help a 46 year old woman get her, (laughs) her knee back to normal. So I stopped feeling like a little broken puppet. Maybe, uh, you know, I think I've used it a little bit to slow myself down. I think COVID brain is, is real and, I've been a lot really focused on this injury. And so it's been maybe kind of directing some of that focus elsewhere. Yeah. So yeah, a little more intention. Well, keep healing. Well, the prayers of the popping collars community is with you. They are. They're making me better. Yeah. Oh, well today we are talking about pandemic pop culture, pandemic pop culture. Say that three times fast. So using the tools of popular culture, particularly any kind of storytelling to explore the potential impact of a plague or a pandemic is nothing new. You can think all the way back to those biblical plagues that Moses warned Pharaoh about, which were immortalized in the book of Exodus. We've always known that pandemics can happen, and history is in large part anchored around these tragic mass illness events that bring darkness. And then often later they bring creativity. Humanity's will to survive and to make meaning out of our survival is nothing new to us. But in recent decades, there seems to have been a greater appreciation for the vulnerabilities of our planet, for the vulnerability of having an economy that relies on easy and fast global travel And also this vague sense of terror that has hounded us since 9-11. And that's sort of made Americans in particular fear the plague. We now live in what the sociologist Ulrich Beck calls a risk society, a culture that is increasingly aware of its potential for annihilation. Now, when COVID-19 first emerged, I don't think that I was the only one who turned to pop culture for some kind of perspective or maybe even on some tools for how to survive. Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film Contagion wasn't added to all the streaming services in March by accident. So we know that horror and sci-fi and all of these scary genres can usually give us some deep cultural critique. So we're turning to pandemic pop culture today to see if we can make meaning out of the difficult year we've had. So we're going to take turns sharing as we always do. And Greg is going to pull out the wheel of, oh, oh. No, making its triumphant Lent return. In Lent of 2021, we've returned. We need to simplify. Yeah, we're simplifying. We need to simplify for Lent. We are returning to the bag. (laughs) 
uh, <laughs> called All Shall Be Well bag, which includes coin. I just, you know, this is not a television show. Our people, our listeners can't see us. It's a little bag. Now, and I'm not looking in the bag. The bag <laughs> consistently picks Ricardo last. So that let's is see. true. That's true. But because I said it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ricardo's picked first this time. Thanks, Bag. Oh, man. Thanks, Bag. You're the best, Bag. Thanks, Bag. Well, here I was always complaining about going last. Uh, and now I'm, well, I guess I can't complain. I was just going to say, you know, when, when, we, when we came up with the topic, um, uh, up, until, up until just before we recorded, I, I actually thought it was about viral pop culture. like things that went viral and <laughs> why do they do that and i had this whole little thing that i was going to say about like how shallow our culture is that things go viral and people people put meaning on all that and you know what does it really matter so what if the i don't know what the latest viral thing was but but then i think you know maybe it's a way of, of us all feeling kind of connected in this way that we're not because life has maybe gotten a little less relational especially in the uh, lockdown year that we've had. But that's not the topic. That's not the topic. We can save that topic for a future episode, though. It sounds like it would be a good one. Sounds like maybe it would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you you mentioned my choice already, Liz. Oh. I, I watched the movie Contagion, that 2011 film by Steven Soderbergh. And um, it was my kind of uh, belated foray into uh, using pop culture to process what we're what we're doing uh the moment we're in and i i think i think i didn't see it until like november or december of last year which was like i think everybody watched it right away um what struck me about it and i think watching it this late in the game was interesting uh you know with the pandemic because it struck me how right and true it was to what we've gone through it was kind of shocking and especially now with the vaccines going out and who gets to get them first. And in the movie, there's a, there's a lottery, right? There's a lottery that happens. And I think, is it based on your name? You know, or, or I forget what, it was a really good criterion. Birth, I think it was just birthday. Mm-hmm. Was it, oh, right, right, right. If it was like, if your birthday was March 13th or something, then you're next. We may never know where this disease came from, but we do know that this vaccine is a result of the courage and perseverance of a remarkable few. We shall now begin the drawing, John. First MEV-1 vaccination are those people born on March 10th. March 10th. Remind all of you to stay 10 feet apart from each other while online. The next citizens to receive the MEV-1 vaccination are those born on the date January 11th. January okay. 11th. All right. 144. Day that's <clears throat> still uh, 200, uh, more than 200 birthdays, huh, that haven't been called. So that's good. That's a good number. What if they run out? They're not going to run out. They have enough to keep up with the man. They said that already. March 28th. Maybe I'm immune like you, and I don't even need it. So instead, we lose spring, we lose summer, we lose another 144 days that don't happen again. 
It was interesting that the whole vaccination rollout, I never occurred to me that there would be politics around that. But sure enough, there really are. And the movie captured that pretty well. So that's that's kind of it, it was actually it was really good. I mean, the movie as a movie was all right. But as a as a kind of a, a, a prophecy of what we're going through now, I was surprised at how fitting it was. The other thing that that movie really gets right is the um, Jude Law's character who develops this conspiracy theory about a natural remedy and like, why is the government keeping this away from us? And um, that also felt like something that could happen. Little too real. Yeah. Is there a weird religiosity element? Because I find those in some of these. Not at all. Viral movies. No, Nothing, no just, just weird, kooky character that's over here saying, it's God's judgment. No one doing no. that? No, and in fact, what is striking is that there's no religion at all. Yeah, that's not really Soderbergh's bag, I don't think. I feel terrible for people right now who are becoming, who are catching the virus when a vaccine exists yeah. and they haven't yet gotten their shot and some of them might die. Can you imagine? The cure is here but I've gotten it and I'm dying. That's harsh. I want to give a quick plug for a piece of pandemic pop culture that I know you participated in this year, Ricardo. What's that? Yeah, qu- quick plug. We both read the book late October, the end of October by Lawrence Wright. Mm-hmm. I think the guy who wrote going clear. Um, it's an okay book. It's like a thriller, but the ending is mind blowing. I thought. So if you want a pandemic read, it's a little close to home. I felt like it was a little bit close to home. You know what? What? Everything I just said about contagion, I meant about this book. <laughs> it it may <laughs> Well, it's also it's, it's true about contagion also. But yeah, I suppose, but the end of October totally I was like, "Oh my god, I should be more nervous. Like it's all out there and people are dying and so the end of October We'll talk later. Anyway, sorry. Later. Who cares? And anyway, don't ever pick me first. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Yay, Ricardo! Way to get us started. Good job, Thank Ricardo. You. The bag has chosen. Oh, Betsy. The bag has chosen. All right. So I'm returning to something that I've actually recommended on this podcast before. But it is that freaking good. And it's a trinity of books. I, I think I, I think I've, you know, I've, uh, anyway, I love it. So it is Justin Cronin's The Passage series. I talk about it again because I do not want you to say, oh, she's recommending The Passage, the TV show on Fox with Mark Paul Gossler. I am not recommending The Passage. The <laughs> Mark show. Paul Gossler of Saved by the Bell fame? That's right, Zach Morris. Yes. Who I very much enjoy on the show Mixed-ish. And if it means he gets to be on that show, I much prefer that show. Than the adaptation that they worked on. I mean, this these books are so vast and detailed, and it actually is is covering a disease that turns you into kind of this kind of you know um, ever living kind of um, you know zombie vampire situation. But it 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 runs over gen- uh, several generations, kind of living in the wake of of this outbreak, right? And the religious undertones and themes throughout the whole thing are really good, just really good. And I think it was my looking at that and then thinking about, I don't know, Justin Cronin, who's the author, he's from Texas. And I was looking around when I was kind of getting ready. I'm like, okay, I've already talked this before. How can I talk about something different? And so there's a great article. 
And uh, the title is How Passage Author Justin Cronin Became a Lifelong Catastrophist. In 2006, uh, my daughter was eight years old at the time. She asked me if she could join me in the afternoons uh, on my afternoon run. And we'd done this before. And when we'd done it, we'd always sort of done some, some kind of game to pass the time. And I said to her, okay, why don't we uh, plot out a novel together? And she said, well, all right, let's, let's do that. And I asked her, uh, well, what do you think we should, what kind of plot would you like? And she said, um, I'd like a story about a girl who saves the world. The title of the passage showed up in my brain just from the get-go. Um, it refers to a number of things. I mean, it's one of those cases where I feel like the book really, it, the book is its title and the title is the book. Um, it overtly refers to uh, a journey. A passage is a journey. Uh, a passage is a transition from one state to another. Um, the world of this book makes a radical passage. As one of the characters in the passage says, uh, something is coming, something large. Um, and I think the, the future is even more nerve-wracking because we don't know what that something is. We actually used to know in the, the 60s and 70s, we knew exactly what the danger was. Now, we don't know only, as I say, only how it will feel like when it gets here and it will feel strangely familiar. And I realized reading this that I am a catastrophist to a certain degree. So in this, it's an essay written by him about, you know, the first line is, I've been waiting for this to happen since I was 12 years old. Wow. Speaking about the coronavirus, this pandemic. And I would agree that I've always, you know, maybe it's my Enneagram fourness. you know, it's like, what part of history will I live through? You know, and like, and I'm in such a boring part of, you know, like those sorts of narratives that we all have about wondering what history we're actually going to live through to then now be living through something that is going to be, you know, just this historic marker. And we don't even know what it's going to turn into. And as I'm, you know, sitting in you know, the gym of a middle school, waiting to see if I'm having a reaction from the shot put in my arm, like just stuff that you see on historical documentaries, you know, things that will be mentioned in people's family trees. Like it's just that sort of level of stuff. But he talks about the books that shaped him and the narratives that helped shape him to be always wondering when is this going to happen? Not in an anxious way, but in a I'm a prepared kind of way, right? He talks about a book from 1949 called The Earth Abides. Mm -hmm. In the essay, he talks about it's a book where a guy goes off into the woods to write his dissertation. He's bitten by a snake. He passes out. He recovers. He returns back to the world to find that the venom acted as a resistance thing. And everybody, they're like, everybody else is dead. Talked about the Andromeda strain, the stand um, on the beach. Another great book about kind of the end of the world and that sort of thing. And so I just wanted to read this quick quote with you. You know, um, and all of this would have been perfectly fine, just another morbid childhood fascination, if not for the fact that none of it went away. The opposite was true. My mind wrapped around the apocalypse like a python. And the older I got, the more these imaginary flights into catastrophe hardened into a calculated assessment of the future I would live in or not. By the time I entered college, I became a clubhouse expert on nuclear annihilation. I knew the name of every launch system in the yield of every warhead, and I had at my disposal enough military acronyms to fill a crossword puzzle the Sunday Times. 
I stored in my keepsake box a copy of the Office of Technology Assessments 1979 report to the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, chillingly titled The Effects of Nuclear War, and could recount in blistering detail what a one megaton Soviet warhead would do to downtown Detroit. Put a couple of beers in Justin, and before long, he'd be telling everybody in the bar how much dirt they'd have to shovel in front of their basement windows and how many months they'd have to stay down there. And I realized that I am drawn to these stories. I, I enjoy movies and stories where it is a small band of people who have to come together to fight against something bigger than themselves. Like the Israelites? Like the Israelites. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like these, these, you know, you're up against, you're up against it. And it's like, have you brought us out here to die? And that, like, that literally is the story of the Bible. If somebody asked me, what's the Bible about? The whole thing. I mean, that's yeah. really what it's about. A small band of people who, yeah. Yeah. Who, who are trying to change the world or who are trying to live differently. Against incredible to, odds. Yes. But at the same time, it makes me like movies like Twister, which is not a good movie, but I like it. But I think it's this element of, of kind of coming together against something and, and how, what does it reveal about you in the aftermath? And these books, they're long. He has not written something um, a novel since 2016. I don't know what he's working on. I wonder what this will do and what he might write next, which makes me kind of excited to see what do you do when you actually live it? And it comes, comes to you, the thing you've always wondered and worried about. I think that there are personality types that are drawn to this. Some of them are paranoid, but they're not all paranoid. No, I no. think that there is a kind of like essentialism that you mentioned, like what is important? What would I need to secure? How much do I need? How little do I need? And also um, I've been struck, I will to the point of almost obsession by people who refuse to acknowledge the impact that this pandemic is having on our lives in a spiritual or psychological way. I think mm -hmm. that there's just like profound resistance to confronting the collective reality that we're living in and people are just pushing past it. And I don't mean people who aren't abiding by, um, by guidelines, but I just mean people who insist that um, virtual gatherings are just like in-person gatherings. That's not true at all. In that same article, Cronin writes, you know, every, as everyone knows, the reality of a pandemic is still far less dramatic than anything in a novel. It's slower, just for starters, a kind of relentless grinding of the spirit. Mm. And I think for, for folks who are kind of looking for how, you know, we were all just trying to get to 2021. And now it's like, oh, my Lord. Right. You know? And maybe as a catastrophist, you're sort of more mentally sort of able to make that leap. But I think for a lot of folks it's just denial. Like it's, it's another thing that you can deny, you know, because you want your life to be okay. You want everything to be okay in the face of a reality. that's not okay. I think fantasy versus reality has been a hard thing for people to deal with and for state governments to deal with. Like there are governors that don't want this pandemic to exist like um, and they make policy to ignore it in a, in a horror movie. I would try to be the nice guy who would ingratiate himself and make people feel good so that they would like, I'd latch on to like the hero so that he would take me along or she would take me along and, and kind of save me because I'm nice. You know, that's all I can do to survive. 
But in this pandemic, I think I actually did a good thing and kind of, you know, pat myself on the back. For whatever reason, not contrary to who I am, I immediately decided we're having morning prayer every day. Uh, and I thought it would be like a month or two, right? <laughs> so Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m., join us on Facebook Live. And lo and behold, we're, you know, in our 11th, 12th month, the dozen or so who show up, they really rely on it. So, um, and have helped other people survive in that way. So I guess that counts, maybe. It does count. Man does not live by bread alone. Like it absolutely counts. Having spiritual resources and community to make meaning out of what we're experiencing is exactly what people need. Uh, the bag has chosen <gasps> me next. Mine's super simple. Uh, mine is The Thing by John Carpenter. We're gonna draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're gonna find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. My blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. Crawl away from a hot needle, say. I guess you're okay. All right. Put that on and watch them. Let's try the Doc and Clark. Clark was human, huh? Which makes you a murderer, don't it? Palmer now. This is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove a thing. I thought you'd feel that way, Gary. You were the only one that could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. Uh, so not a virus necessarily, more like an alien. But uh, but it does it does what um, the worst part of this pandemic is sort of exposed, which is um, it exposes people's uh, suspicion of each other and and their ability to see uh, other people as threats. The insidious thing about a virus is that it's this living thing that needs hosts, and so it needs to get into Liz's body. And it needs Liz to sneeze so it can get into my body, right? So the virus is the threat, but also Liz is kind of the threat to me, right? Um, and so it it creates suspicion and it creates distance and it creates separation and it creates all of these things that we as the church kind of work in the opposite direction. We're trying to bring people closer. We're trying to bring people more intimate. We're trying to bring people to uh, you know more understanding, to more connection. And the threat of COVID-19, the threat of it, uh, naturally involves us um, getting away from each other, separating from each other, moving out of spaces that we treat as holy together. That's a thing that, that the thing does really well, is, is that you sort of see uh, Kurt Russell's descent into paranoia and suspicion of his, you know, of the people that are on this sort of isolated space and how 
the the threat ultimately is the alien that's among them, but it's also their own minds and their own ways of treating each other and their own ways of responding to each other. So instead of working together, it naturally sort of makes them work against each other in order to protect themselves in order to survive, right? That sort of survival instinct. Going back, you know, thinking a year ago, um, my response to COVID-19 and the shutdowns and, you know, the initial steps of, you know, well, let's just separate for a couple of weeks and let's, you know, let's close church through like the end of March and then we'll reevaluate and all of that stuff. Like my initial take on all of that was to deny it because I had a trip to Spain <laughs> coming up. I really wanted to go on. That was me, right? That was my selfish stuff. And this thing was a threat to what I wanted to do, like my thing, right? So now I'm suspicious of anybody telling me that it's a threat. I'm suspicious of like people telling me like, oh, we need to settle into this for the long haul. Uh, I was suspicious of anyone that uses the phrase new normal. Because all of this stuff was coming at me, like it was coming at my plans, right? We had some hard podcast conversations early on. We did. Living through this year, like I think, I think that it's been hard for a lot of people because because of the the things that John Carpenter gets out in this movie, which is that you know it's it's the unseen, you know, like Ricardo was saying, it's this unseen menace that exists in our loved ones that's the kind of hard thing about it and the hateful thing about it um so that's my thing it's the thing um because of kind of the the parts of humanity that i think it exposes and the challenges that especially we who work in parishes and churches i think that we face so to be clear i believe that the virus is part of creation so i just want to be clear about that and especially in the beginning with this virus in particular, there are aspects of it that felt demonic. Like before we, that before we knew as much as we know now, the fact that like you couldn't be around people, you couldn't touch, you know, we were so afraid of touch. We couldn't celebrate the Holy Eucharist. Like I understand I've heard folks who come from very different Christian backgrounds than mine and other religions too, who say that the, um, restrictions are assaults on their religious freedom. I don't believe that at all, but I can understand how it, it feels that way, that the very things that we do as people of faith, especially as Christians who believe so deeply in the power of the incarnation, we couldn't do that. And in the, this has changed, but in the beginning, like you couldn't even visit a sick parishioner in the hospital. You know, and thank goodness, in most places, we have figured out ways to be safe. But in the beginning, it really felt like this has been sent to divide us in mm-hmm. a way, you know. And so, but then we have these priests like Ricardo and like so many who found ways to keep communities together in the midst of it. Yeah. And I think I think that all of this nonsense is related, you know, all of the the January 6th stuff, the fallout from the election stuff like the lead up to the election stuff, it's all connected. Like all of this stuff is connected and it all comes out of this spirit of suspicion and threat, right? So it's like, well, maybe the virus isn't a threat to me, but your political beliefs are a threat to me. Like it's all like, it's all fueling off of that thing, whatever that is. And I think the virus has exposed a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I'm not one to trot out little trite phrases, but I'm going to this time. I think this was alluded to earlier. I get a sense from some uh, clergy and other people in the church, like I feel sometimes shamed for wanting things to go back to the way they were pre-pandemic. You know, it's like, you need to stop thinking that way. That way is not going to move us forward. You know, we're not going back. It's like, I'm bad for wanting that. And you know what I mean, because you're Mm -hmm. all kind of nodding. And that kind of makes me mad. It's like, how dare you tell me what I can or cannot long for, because it's, you know, unrealistic, or it's not going to help us progress. The Episcopal Church in progress, I think, have at best a tenuous track record (laughs) of success. So it it can be both and. It can be I miss and long for that, but I realize it can't necessarily be that way. But that doesn't mean I have to, you know, tamp down my longing. To me, what you said, Ricardo, about longing is so key. And to shame another person's longing is, in my mind, heretical that there's great wisdom in the Christian tradition going back a long, long ways that our human desires, whether it's our desire for sexual touch or for affectionate touch or the desire of babies to be held, all of our physical longings are um, hints of our longing for God. That, that, you know, that's what it means to be made in God's image, that when we desire and long for human connection, we are desiring and longing for God. Mm-hmm. So to, to shame that and say, we're not going to have that anymore. You're not going to have that physical connection, but here is Zoom, a, co- a corporate entity, <laughs> by the way, or here is Facebook, which steals all your data and mines it. You'll never get to touch again, but here's Facebook. That is the church needs to reject that. It doesn't mean that we need to be foolish or rush things or pretend that we, you know, or do something stupid. It doesn't mean that at all, but to shame a person's longing for wanting to be in physical proximity to other humans, worshiping God is messed up. All right. Oh, Liz, it's Liz's turn. Okay. You take a deep breath. That got me riled up. I'm going to talk about a book. No surprise. A pandemic book. I know. This? It's really book heavy, guys. I know. It is pretty Books book heavy. There's a lot of. of good pandemic literature. And I'm going to say right now, I'm surprised that nobody picked um, The Stand by Stephen King. I thought with this group, uh, we totally could have done that, but I didn't do that. I picked the novel Station Eleven by um, Emily St. John Mandel. You just gasped, Ricardo. Have you read it? Yeah, I loved it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. So I read it, it came out in 2014 and someone lent it to me and I just kind of stuck it on the shelf and never read it. And then it was like, it was burning a hole on my bookcase for the first part of the pandemic. I was like, I know that's a pandemic book. Am I ready for this? Can I handle it? Um, And I'm so glad that I did. It was definitely my second favorite novel that I read in the year 2020. You'll have to listen to our spinoff podcast to hear my first Hashtag sponsored. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. One snowy night, a famous Hollywood actor dies on stage during a production of King Lear. Hours later, 
the world as we know it begins to dissolve. What was lost in the collapse? Almost everything, almost everyone. But there is still such beauty. Twilight in the altered world. A performance of a midsummer night's dream in a parking lot. We'd known for a long time that the world's changes wouldn't be reversed. But still, the realization cast our memories in sharper light. It is possible to survive this, but not unaltered. Station Eleven, a novel by Emily St. John Mandel. But anyway, this book uh, takes place sort of in the Great Lakes region of North America after a huge fictional pandemic called the Georgia Flu passes around the world and kills most of the population. Most human beings die. There's only a small remnant of people who remain. It is one of those great novels where there are a lot of characters and you get a sense that they are connected to one another, but you aren't quite sure at how. And the author weaves their stories together in a really beautiful way. And it jumps back in time before the pandemic and then to this present day where there's this little band of people like Betsy Loves um, traveling through this sort of new world. They restart time once the pandemic passed and they call that like year zero. So it focuses mainly on this traveling uh, troupe of actors and musicians that they call the Traveling Symphony who travel around performing Shakespeare's plays because they tried performing other things But what they found was that people wanted Shakespeare. They wanted the best of us, the best of what human beings created um, over the course of history. One of the really interesting aspects of this book is that there is sort of a um, religious fanatic character and kind of a cult that begins to take over in parts of these communities. And it's really the only reference to religion, which I found really interesting because like Ricardo, I sometimes wonder who I will be in the post-apocalyptic band of travelers. And all that I have is my ability to be a priest. And um, I found myself thinking a lot like what parts of the prayer book would I remember and write down? What parts of our scripture would stick with me? What parts would I remember and what parts would I embellish? over years um who would jesus be to me in that type of world and none of that was touched on the only religious reflection was a that of a madman it's part mystery part post-apocalypse a little sci-fi in a sense there's no technology actually it's not sci-fi at all but even still it's it asks these really wonderful questions about my life, what matters, who do I love, how do I love, what is culture, what is art. Highly recommend Station Eleven. Yeah. Just added it to my wish list. Oh, it's so Sounds good. like it is right up my alley. I love it. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. That'd yeah. be awesome. 
it's it's so much relational. It's about relationships, and it's about how, how do you how do you forge those, and what becomes important, and whose compassion is going to come up in in the face of a crisis, and who's going to kind of close in on themselves and shut down, and that idea about art being so crucial to people, even after the apocalypse, that they want to hear the Shakespeare. Like no one would go to Shakespeare now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but give me an apocalypse, and I'm front row for you know. We have um, a coffee house. It has been an activity we've had for years where people come and they do their, their impromptu band plays or they read something or they sing something, whatever. And I had a student on a panel because we had our board of trustees meeting and, and they were like, you know, what, what is, you know, what have the weekends been like? And that sort of thing. And she's a senior. She's like, I've never gone to one of those. Like, you know, maybe they're, she's taking a leave and she's off campus going to a movie with friends and they can't go do any of that now. So she's like, I went, it was awesome. It was like, why haven't I been going to this? Mm -hmm. Like we're latching on to these things. And we, we were even talking about how I was on a, in another committee meeting, like how could this possibly break some of the things that we've wanted broken Mm -hmm. habits that we've formed things that could be done different. And I've, I've, maybe said this on this podcast before, but breaking things in a way that we can't put them back together again. And that that's good. That then we move into doing something different. And we, we are looking at ourselves differently, looking at our communities differently. I, I like that phrase, breaking something in a way that you can't put it back together again. Mm-hmm. I, I've never heard that. Is that yours, Betsy? That's well done. I think it's mine. Unless I've read it somewhere and in my COVID brain, it's become mine. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I, I, you know, when I was talking earlier about um, being shamed for wanting things to go back to the way they were, I was actually, re- I was referring to, you know, church leaders, when we were like, when can we get back in the building? When can we get back in the building? And mm-hmm. that's when the shaming happened. Like, stop doing that. That's, you know, and while I think the shaming is inappropriate, I do sort of hope that on the other side of this, things are broken it can't get put back together again. And that's a good thing. And I'm not sure exactly what that's going to be, but I think, again, speaking for St. Luke's Los Gatos, some of those old habits of not really praying out loud or connecting and that, and that, that what's broken is what was um, unhealthy. Because you want to work with like the most information that you have. And when you're wandering through the fog, like we are right now with this thing where we have very limited information, it's hard to think, you know, a month down the road, two months down the road. It's hard to think like specifically about what those things could be. But at the same time, I think every parish needs to be having a big picture conversation, not just the little like week to week. Okay. So how are we going to get through this week? How are we going to get through this week? But like, what is, what is our parish going to be? Like now is the time to start having those big conversations too. And you don't have to be specific about it but do it right. Because things are going to be, you're going to have uh, the currency to do things a little bit differently moving forward and prioritize things. What a real, this has been a real uplifter. Everybody. I just want to say pandemic pop culture. I love this show. Me too. We've always said that's the part of um, that's what pop culture is really about is, is making meaning in our lives. And, um, so it'll be, it'll be just as interesting to see the pop culture that comes out of this pandemic as the culture that informs it. 
Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, Ricardo, for another spectacular episode of Popping Colors Podcast in Lent 2021. Maybe your Lenten discipline is listening to more podcasts. We hope that that's true because we have a lot of them. I don't know if you've noticed we've branched out. We're a franchise now. Rewind and listen to that little thing at the beginning of the podcast that told you what to expect because there's a lot coming up. You can find our podcast on our website, poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can also find us at the Episcopal Cafe, which hosts our podcast and others. We love the Episcopal Cafe, and we know you will too. Turn to them for all your Episcopal news and opinion needs. Thanks for listening. Remember to always keep those collars popped. Pop, pop. Number one Christmas podcast <laughs> on Pandora. December will, will that happen every year? Uh, you know. We'll see. I gotta say, longest running Episcopal podcast ever is pretty good. I am a new day rising. I'm a brand new sky to hang the stars upon tonight. I am a little divided. Do I stay old?